Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, have you considered creating a photo record of your pandemic experience? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to the photo detective Maureen Taylor about some of her ideas on how you can document this incredible experience for your descendants. Plus, we're going to be talking to a couple of key people in the photograph world about a new group called the Family History Metadata Working Group. What are they doing? Why should this matter to you? You'll find out coming up this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome, socially isolated genies, to another episode of Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. My name is Fisher. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And, of course, we're doing the show direct from Fisher Castle, uh, as always now these days. And I know so many of you are working from home as well. we got a great show today lined up, and we're talking about photography today and making a record of what's going on with the pandemic, what your experience is like. Because, as I like to say, we're living in somebody else's past Let's get a good record of that and uh, make that available for our descendants down the line. We're going to talk to Maureen Taylor. She is the photo detective. She's got some great ideas and some great plans on this and some uh, some places for you to look at because her state is actually putting together a pandemic record that everybody can contribute to. So it's kind of a unique thing there. Plus, I'm going to talk to my good friend Chris Desmond. He is from MemoryWeb, also Robert Friedman. The two of them are on an interim board of a new organization called Family History Metadata Working Group. And the idea is to kind of standardize uh, the way we take metadata and move it along with photographs. What does that all mean? I know it's very technical. We will find out a little bit later on in the show. Hey, if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, now is the time. Just go to our website, extremegenes.com, or sign up through our Facebook page. You get a blog from me each week, links to present and past shows, and links to stories that you'll find pretty fascinating as a genealogist. Right now, it's time to head out to Massachusetts, somewhere near Boston, where David Allen Lambert is standing by. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. How you doing, David? Hey, I'm still upright. <laughs> yes, that's always good, because I know your area has been hit pretty hard, hasn't it? Yeah, we have, but you know we're giving it our best shot to stay healthy and keep our distance. Genealogy is doing the same thing, because my first story for you has to do with the upcoming conference that was scheduled this month in Salt Lake City. The National Genealogical Society, as many of you may have heard, has gone virtual, uh, not viral. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The idea is viral, though, because many groups are now going virtual with their conferences. Uh, So on May 20th, they will have a live version at 11 a.m., And they will also have an on-demand with many of the speakers that would have been normally seen in Salt Lake City will be available opening on July 1st after they taped all of them. I'm giving a talk on Spanish-American war veterans, and I uploaded my PowerPoint to them just the other day. So it's a new experience and a new world. You know, the, the idea, though, is fantastic because I'm thinking there are so many more people available to actually attend the NGS conference by doing it this way, so uh, that, that would be great. How do people find out more about this? 
They can go simply to conference.ngsgenealogy.org. All right. Let's move on with our family histoire news today. Where you want to start? Well, I guess we could start with you never know who's related to you. Right. Uh, or how to plan a social distancing happy hour. Well, this is what neighbors did. And these neighbors in California realized that, oh, wait, four houses down the street, another Norwegian family are actually related. Yeah, they started to notice that uh, they came from the same area. So one family reached out to a relative back in Norway, and I guess she had the the family history there, and they looked it up and they found that they shared second great-grandparents. So they're third cousins. They live just a couple of doors down apart from each other in social isolation in California. And they say the hardest thing about this is they can't go give a hug to their new relatives, but they're all very excited about it. And what a great discovery, right? It really is. I think it would be great to see how much DNA they share, too. Yeah. That would be kind of fun. Well, I really appreciate the next story you put on Extreme Genes because of my love for the Boston Red Sox and hometown Beantown here. Babe Ruth, when he was, you know, one of Oz, not the New York team. Right. <laughs> There's a great story the Smithsonian put out when Babe Ruth and the great influenza gripped Boston. Yeah. Now, Boston is one of the places where the pandemic of the influenza in 1918 really hit hard. It started with our soldiers that were heading off to war. Many of them actually never made it overseas because they died in the camps or on, on the ship in Boston Harbor where they had a lot of the recruits. And Babe Ruth, being a very extroverted person was very much going around and shaking hands and talking to veterans on his trips. He had just come back from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and that night he had 104 fever, and we almost lost him. Yeah, we might not have had the Babe Ruth that we came to know. You know, it might have been this young guy who was such a great pitcher and hitter, but never got to fulfill his potential because he died of the Spanish flu back in 1918 in Boston. He never would have been a Yankee. There would have been no house that Ruth built. All that stuff would have never happened. It's just amazing how close he came. It really is. And I'm grateful that the great Bambino survived the flu of 1918. And hopefully all of our listeners will survive COVID 2020. Well, you know, DNA has been great for genealogists, but it's also been great for crime solving because now in Portland, Oregon, police have solved a 21-year-old murder that took place. Back in 1999, a young man was murdered, and now his killer has been found. Yeah, these long-standing cold cases are amazing, but when you opt in, who knows what you can help with? And it's great to get another killer off the street. And uh, we're not getting as many as I think we did before the whole mess with Jed Match last year, but uh, it's nice that we're still seeing some progress in taking some of these people off the streets. That's very true. Well, that's about all I have for this week from American Ancestors and south of Beantown. I hope that everyone is doing well, and my thoughts go out to all of you. And uh, enjoy your genealogy, and if you have a chance, don't forget to ask us anything. We're always looking for your questions. Right, and we're going to get to that a little bit later on in the show, and you'll be back. So thanks so much, David. My good friend Maureen Taylor, she is the photo detective. And uh, Maureen, you have a great thing working right now, this idea of creating Do we want to call it a COVID or coronavirus photo album to just keep track of the history of it? Because we are living through history. We could call it anything we want, a pandemic (laughs) archive, a family archive. But I think it's a timely topic. Obviously, we're all stuck in the house. The whole world has come to a pretty much a pause. Yep. 
and our lives are different. You know, you think about the 1918 flu epidemic. Oh, yeah. As family historians, there's very little mentioned, and it's hard to find that information on your family. Sure. People didn't talk about it. So let's document what's happening now as it happens. And I have some really dynamic women here in the state of Rhode Island that created actually a state-based COVID archive. Oh, wow. And for the state, they even have guidelines on how to create your own personal archive in general, but it's applicable to the moment in which we're living. Sure. And it brings us all together. So it's things like take pictures around your neighborhood of the changes. If there are things that are different, one of their suggestions is to take a picture of your freezer. (laughs) I like the idea that we've been doing some of this stuff, both my wife, Julie, and I, Maureen, and it's amazing when you open your eyes and think this way that, hey, we're going to create an archive. You'll see something and you immediately think, oh, I got to take a picture of that. Because if you're not thinking that way, you might just go, oh, look at that. How interesting. And you ignore it. Right. And and these are challenging times, right, for all of us. Everybody. Experiencing it differently. Right. We all have people that we're worried about. That there's like asking you to not only look within yourself and maybe write down a story or keep a video log of what you're feeling at the end of every day. Say you're a first responder or someone who works in a hospital right before you come home. Say a few things into your voice memo. Take a picture of nature. Like yeah. I had a turkey in my front yard last week. Oh, how I weird. in the city of Providence, Rhode Island, and there was a huge <laughs> Huge turkey. Did, in you my did, front you yard. didn't go out and try to, to snatch it up, did you? You're not that hungry. <laughs> no, I'm not that hungry. But I was like, what are you? I was thinking, what are you doing here? Uh-huh. Where did you come from? Right? You're a single turkey. Did you take a picture of it? I did. I, I got him when he was in my neighbor's yard, so it's a little far away. But That's okay. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, because you're right. I mean, we're hearing now about sheep taking over parks. And uh, animals like alligators, there were like five alligators that took over a beach that's usually for tourists in South America because nobody's there and there's nobody to chase them off, you know. And certainly we're going to see those things everywhere. We're seeing people coming back from overseas and uh, and having people do drive-by greetings for them right in our cul-de-sac here. And that's made for some interesting photos. Also, some businesses that are mostly shut down right now that are posting little sayings like biblical things, you know, about keeping hope. And I thought, well, that's a unique thing you wouldn't normally see also. Exactly. Or for kids, have them capture their thoughts about living at this time. Have them draw pictures. Mm-hmm. Have them write a little story about what they think the future will be like. I saw this hysterical video of this little, she had to be four years old. It was online someplace and somebody had videotaped her and she was like, I don't know, but I just need to go out. I really want to go out. (laughs) But my mom says I can't go out, but that's my problem. I just want to go out. (laughs) Sort of like that's how we're all feeling. Sure. And it was a great moment and that's the kind of thing you can keep for your archive. We don't want to forget this. We want the future to look back and say, this is how we coped. Keep one of the masks that you wear or a few of the masks when we're finally Or just take a picture of the mask. You don't need to keep them. Or take a picture of the mask. (laughs) I don't know. My mask, these creative types have been making are works of art. You know, here's Mm. here's the thing too, and I say this a lot. I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but the idea is we are living in somebody else's past. Right. I mean, yeah, we, we have people who are not born yet. We are in their past 
And so it's really up to us to document it as if they are here now and present so they can understand what this whole experience has been like and how lucky are we to have the technology we have today because, uh, I mean, could you imagine having a, a video or with audio of one of our ancestors, a great-grandparent, a grandparent, talking about their experience as it happened in 1918? Or the plague. Yeah. Or a medieval plague. Sure. What it's like. I mean, yes, exactly. And we're really the first generation that can do that. Well, in fact, it has a name. It's called Lived Experience Archiving or Rapid Response archiving. Really? It who, actually, who comes up is, with these are, names and who certifies there are, them? <laughs> there are archives, archivists, yeah. who do this. Okay. And so there's a model for this statewide project, the Rhode Island RI COVID archive.org, where any of us that live here in the state can add to it. And I promised I'd do my part and on my next walk around the neighborhood, take some pictures and put them up. Sure. But there's a model for this kind of family archive, state archive, city archive. And it's important because we communicate in a digital format now. Completely we don't different. necessarily have handwritten letters. And if we did, we'd have to sanitize them before we brought them in our house anyway. <laughs> so this is where we're living. Take a snapshot of your life. You know, keep a journal yeah. of what's happening. I, however, am using Facebook for that purpose. And on my personal Facebook page every day, I sort of go on and sort of post a few things that I'm doing and then ask other people what they're doing. And people from all over the place are telling me about their day and what they're doing. And I started it because, like everyone else, I was having a very difficult time in the beginning. You know, my I sure. have family members who are on lockdown and I can't see them. And this is the longest I've ever gone without sure. seeing them. So I thought... I'm going to reach out and just say, this is what I'm doing today. This is what I'm worried about. This is what I think is funny. Just as a way of saying, hello, I'm here. I miss all of you. And then people have been responding in remarkable ways and remarkable stories. Well, and it, and it is fun also to hear what our fellow genies are doing right now because they've got all this free time and they're making great breakthroughs and, <laughs> and, and, and they're, they're helping one another. I mean, there's like years of research being done here in this compact period of time. And, you know, there's going to be a lot more, too. I'm seeing more DNA matches show up now, too. And I would have never thought that. But obviously, these would be ones that uh, tests that were taken, what, late February? Yes. Right. Somewhere Root yeah, right. Yes, right around RootsTech. And I personally, as the photo detective, I'm going to say that there's an awful lot of people going through their photo archives right now. Yep, my wife is. She's going crazy yep. with it. And, you know, we've got Memory Web now, which is an incredible tool for uh, for the metadata for that and to organize it in ways we've never seen before. In fact, we're going to be talking to Chris Desmond, one of the creators here, coming up in just a little bit. So I'm excited about that. You know, really, I, this... I love, love memory web. Oh, love it. Yes, I use it. Absolutely, you use it. So I love the idea, Maureen, of creating this COVID, whatever you want to call it, uh, journal with lots of photographs because they're so easy to take. You know, think about it the old days, right? We'd go out, well, we'll take the film over to pay less and we'll have it in a week and we'll pick the ones we want and throw you know we don't have to deal with that stuff anymore man we can create mm -hmm. it so quick and uh, we can even publish books online and have them show up at our door if you want a physical book of this which i think would be a great thing to have that can get passed down and you know i think it's a lot easier to keep those from getting lost often than the digital versions right 
Right. Well, here's the thing. They can create the photo archive of their life as it stands right now. Or, you know, you can't actually put your video into memory web yet, but you can actually create an album that says, here's your pandemic album. You can keyword it all so you can always find them. But there's a, a lot of things that you can do now to document this for the future, not just for your children as they get older, no. but for your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Because later, people are going to ask, what was it like to live during that? Yes, they are, and we'll have a lot to tell them, won't we? That's right. But if we're not around, we'll mm-hmm. have written it down. That's it. You uh, can record a- your family meetings on Zoom. Yes. We're doing that every Sunday now from all over the country. And yeah, we're doing it as well with our kids. But here's the thing. I, I actually, our, we were supposed to have a big family reunion this year. It's canceled. Of course. It's been pushed off, of course, because how are we going to spend six feet apart? <laughs> and so I actually created a new course called Cousin Connections, planning a virtual family reunion. Essentially, that's what I'll be doing. Well, you know, you think about that. Let's just pretend we did have a live family reunion and said, we're going to do it and we're all going to social distance. How in the world would that work? How do you not hug your great aunt? How do you not hug your favorite cousin? You know, I, I just How couldn't How do you imagine. do the buffet? The buffet, yes. We'd have to have those plastic screens, everybody wearing masks, so you couldn't really know who anybody is, except for maybe the great big name tag. No, I don't see that working. Right. None no, of it. I don't see it working. I... So ours has been rescheduled. For 2021? Well, hopefully. Maybe. Yeah. Well, they put off. That's when it's booked for. Yeah. We'll see. They put off Oktoberfest this year, and it's the first time. Yeah, Oktoberfest in Germany. It's like 178 years old, that whole thing. It's the first year they've ever missed. So they're coming back the following year, and they're losing out on something like 1.2 billion euros. So, Maureen, great stuff as always. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I, I think it's a fabulous idea. I think a lot of us are already starting to do this, but I think if we can get the mindset We're going to wind up with a fabulous archive that's going to really tell the story of our times because each of us is experiencing it differently. Maybe a lost job, maybe a lost relative, maybe just the fear of the whole thing, the isolation. You know, I'm talking to relatives who are calling often just saying, I'm alone, I'm so blue, I need to talk. I mean, the uh, the mental side of this is just incredible, but um, great idea. And thanks so much for coming on and talking about it. Thank you, Scott. We are talking photography today on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show, and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth. And it is so good to have my good friend Chris Desmond back on. He is the memory web guy. And at Roots Tech this past year, he was part of the announcement of a metadata working group coming together. And Chris, so we're going to talk to you today kind of in your role as, as part of that, one of the organizers of the interim board. And what is a metadata working group? What does that mean to people who might be scanning their photographs during the pandemic? <laughs> great, great uh, lead in there. Yeah, lots happened since Roots Tech, but... There was a group of different companies last fall that came together, FamilySearch, VividPix, Fizo, Permanent, and MemoryWeb, with the need that we found in the industry related to metadata. And right now, the current issue is that companies will sometimes work with metadata, put in key tags of uh, caption, album, event, people, location, but then once those photos leave a, a platform, the metadata is not mapped necessarily to any fields or the right field so that they can be read and read 
by other organizations. So if I found a photograph then basically online and I right click and say, okay, save this to my computer, I lose all that stuff basically, right? Yeah, and, and different organizations allow you, including even Facebook and, and Google, allow you to take uh, digital files outside of their platform and the need or the drive that the industry is going for is mapping all the key information. Because when you go into a platform, you take like family search and you go in there and you have a photo of a relative and you tag the date, you say where this was, who it was, some key information. When you take that photo out of there, you go to download, you want to make sure that all your hard work is safe. Right. Whether it's you know going to be family search, it's going to be ancestry, my heritage, memory web. DividPix, all of these organizations have that capability of the metadata organization. Now it's a matter of setting the standards so that as photos are shared between organizations or to you, the user, that information is not lost. That's awesome. So what we're trying to do is focus in on some of the key areas that are most commonly used by family historians. So we're focusing on people, vocation, caption, date, album, event, and, and copyrights. And those are the different areas that we find to be most commonly used. And right now we have those organizations involved and I'm, I'm really excited to also have Robert from Permanent. Robert's been a key piece too, because what's neat about this, Scott, is that all of these companies have different perspectives that they're bringing, but we all have the same drive and initiative. So maybe, Robert, you can give your perspective on your role and and some of the things you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Permanent is a nonprofit organization providing a digital storage repository for families, individuals, and small organizations. So we have a software product, and our mission is digital preservation for 100 years and beyond. Wow. Okay. So treating digital files with the same care that we apply to the physical photos and memorabilia that we have at home that might contain handwritten notes or other important details that add depth to a story is of critical importance to families and historians. Right. So we're really invested in making sure that metadata, which is a lot like those hand scribbled notes that add that detail. Um, we want to make sure that those details persist. Right. And the status quo in the industry, not necessarily the kind of organizations you might find at RootsTech who are they're, they're more invested in this area, but the status quo in the general industry amongst uh, photo software platforms isn't necessarily to preserve those details. Sure. So what you're doing then basically is trying to find a way not only for the big boys, but maybe let that trickle down to some of these smaller organizations and platforms so that we can all have that. And for people, by the way, who aren't particularly savvy when it comes to understanding all the technical stuff, you just have to understand that those things that are often written on the back of your photograph, we want to make sure that that information travels with the picture. And this is what memory web does. This is what, uh, what, what the struggle is basically is to keep that information almost as if you're able to copy the front and back of the picture, which by the way, memory web already does, but to standardize it and keep it in these basic fields. And so then when you copy it and you share it with somebody else, it kind of travels with the picture. And then you're able to maintain that information because the bottom line is the background and the story of the picture and who's in the picture and the dates and all that information that Chris was talking about earlier, that is just as important as the photograph itself and its preservation. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the born digital stuff, so not just the physical things you're scanning in, but also the things that you are capturing now don't necessarily contain that information. So when you take a photo on your iPhone, it's not always the case that historically valuable family information is included there. So when you import those into platforms like Permanent or MemoryWeb and you add that information, add value to that born digital material, you want to make sure that that travels with that material. And it's a surprising fact that in many cases, when you upload digital materials to a social media platform, for example, they will strip all of that out. Oh, wow. Yeah, you don't want that. (laughs) And part of the challenge is a typical photo will have nearly 3,000 what they call metadata fields, places that you can store this information. And let's pick on the date field by itself. Okay. There are 99 different metadata fields just for date. Really? The problem we have is, yeah. These are the kind of details that your camera might add to a photo automatically when you've set the date and time in your camera. Your computer might add to that photo when you upload it. The software might add to that photo when you edit it. So these are all dates and times that are appended, added to a digital material as it goes through a sequence of activities. Oh, wow. And it can get pretty confusing when you've got 99 of them. (laughs) (laughs) to decide which is the one that represents the moment the photo was taken in the first place. Okay. All right. I got that. Now you got to explain to me, guys, what our listeners can do to be part of this or be involved in in helping create these standards and why they'd want to be part of this. It's a great question. And the bottom line is the reason why we created this group and the reason why we're trying to create these standards is so all the listeners and the users and folks like us that are family historians will have their hard work saved for future generations to come. That's our mission. And now this is the how. The how is for us to help develop standards for the organizations to use so the users can benefit because everybody's using different platforms and it would be a perfect world if all of those platforms allowed the metadata to travel the photos of their hard work, wherever a user wants to take it. That's our goal. Love it. Yeah, for most of your listeners, we're hoping that they become aware of this issue and then hold the platforms to a higher standard. Got it. Okay, it's the Family History Metadata Working Group. Where can they find out more online, guys? So they can contact us with our email address at info at familyhistorymetadataworkinggroup.org. So it's I-N-F-O at F-H-M-W-G.org. And that will go to all of the uh, interim board members. And then there is a website coming, www.savemetadata.org. We hope to have it live soon with much of the information we just shared and a list of the different partners who are supporting the work. That's awesome. Guys, thanks so much. Chris Desmond from MemoryWeb, Robert Friedman from Permanent, and of course they are officers in this new interim board on this metadata working group that's getting together to help us with family history to make sure we have some standards to maintain all that metadata that goes with the photographs. It's important stuff. Guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. And we are back for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth with David Allen Lambert, back from the New England Historic Genealogical Society, direct from his home in isolation in Stoughton, Massachusetts. And uh, David, we have a question here from Tony Daniel. He says, uh, love your show. 
I uh, have an ask us anything question that comes from a somewhat odd angle. He said several times over the years, my mother mentioned that her father, my grandfather, had a child with another woman. So I have results from her autosomal DNA and my own. I've puzzled over the matches, but I can't figure a way to determine if one of them on my grandfather's side might be a descendant of my apocryphal, long-lost half-cousin if he or she actually exists. Do you have any suggestion on how to proceed? Or is there a way to eliminate the possibility and lay this family legend to rest? Well, David, I'm thinking, uh, first of all, we got to correct him on that. I'm sure you picked up on it, too. Oh, yeah. You're talking about a descendant of your half-uncle or half-aunt. Yes, mm-hmm. because it's a, yeah. a half-sibling of your uh, your mother. And so right. your, your challenge then would be, first of all, perhaps this person is still living. And right. uh, if uh, maybe a child of that half-aunt or half-uncle did a test, then you might come across a half-cousin. And with the DNA, I mean, one thing you can look at, uh, I have Blaine Bettinger's uh, version 3.0 in front of me of the shared centimorgan project, and it tells me that a half-first cousin is about 457 centimorgans. Uh, well, i got to correct you, David, because uh, he's just oh. come out with uh, version 4.0 in March. Oh, uh, i got to send it. And so the, uh, the half-cousin's 449 centimorgans now. And uh, the full cousin would be 866. The, the bottom line is, Tony, that there is a definite way to differentiate between a half first cousin and a full cousin. There is a, a major difference. And so, it, so, you know, depending on how many half cousins you think you have, the known ones, uh, I would think that if you came up with any half cousin at all, they'd be a strong candidate to come through your half aunt or your half uncle. Uh, it could be interesting to see how many first cousins pop up. So keep on looking at your DNA results. That grandparent was as, uh, well, how shall we say, productive as they were to produce another half-cousin. Exactly. Uh, you may have more. Yeah, and you know that there are there are a lot of these situations that come up, and it's possible that uh, nobody has tested from that branch of, of the family yet. So it might be a while, and it might be the kind of thing where you just have to wait it out. But I will tell you that there are a lot of friends that I've had that needed help with DNA projects. One of them started in 2012, and we couldn't get anywhere with it in 2012, 2013, 2014. And finally, somebody tested in 2018. We came back to it that year, and we were able to identify his birth father and birth grandparents, which, by the way, was another line of illegitimacy, quote unquote. So uh, we were able to go back and, and solve all that mystery, but it took many years. And this is the thing, we're, we're so used to everything being so quick and, and we want answers right now, and we certainly do, and we often get them right now, but genealogy still is often a matter of hurry up and wait, and hopefully you'll get that match somewhere down the line. I remember the days when we'd sit by the mailbox waiting for the letter to show up. Now we get instant email. Now it's just a matter of waiting for cousins to show up and yes. waiting for people to come to dinner. Yeah, <laughs> you're exactly <laughs> right. So thanks so much for the question, Tony. And uh, hope that helps you out a little bit. And of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, once again, the email address is simple. Just ask us anything at extremegenes.com. And uh, David, this question comes from Oklahoma City. 
Irvin Waldron is asking about Spanish-American War pension records. He says he sees the Civil War ones on Fold 3 and uh, on Ancestry.com, the revolutionary ones. Where are those Spanish-American pension records? You know, actually, it's right where you think it is. It's actually in the Civil War indexes. What? Civil War, yeah. The general index to pension files, 1861 to 1934, because 1861 being the start of the Civil War, everybody categorizes that collection as the Civil War Pension Index. The truth of the matter is it covers any military pensions through 1934. Wow. That could also be for someone who was injured in some way during the Spanish-American War, the Philippine Insurrection, any of the Indian Wars as well as people that were perhaps even injured in the Mexican border war with Pancho Villa. Really? The Spanish-American War, for sure. It's right there. In fact, if you go to Fold 3, if you look at the T-288 index, that's the index that's alphabetical. So this general pension index for those years is A to Z. The T-289, which is the organizational index, that actually is more useful because it shows you a more modern card And in case of a person that I've researched, if I look at T-288, it says he's in Company C, 8th Massachusetts Infantry. Well, there was a Company C, 8th Massachusetts Infantry in the Civil War. Except for the year of his pension, a little later than the Civil War when he applied for it, there's really no indication that guy was in the Spanish-American War. If I look at the T-289, the organizational index, and I go on a hold three, and I search Massachusetts 8th Infantry, Company C, and look for his name, a card is stamped war with Spain. Huh. And now I know that the guy was in the Spanish-American War and not in the Civil War. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work to separate the two. You'd hope that uh, somewhere along the line they'd be able to do that and make maybe a separate listing, but uh, that might take far too much work. I guess it maybe it was just the way it was laid out on a microfilm at some point? Well, they're all index cards, and so okay. the card index stayed the same until the VA picked up the process in 1934, and continued on the pensions. That's why some pension numbers have an X or an XC. Those are often pensions that either had a widow or the soldier still alive post-1934. So they're with the VA, not actually with the National Archives. And what about World War One records? Are they included in that up through 1934? Uh, well, here's the problem is you don't see a lot of them because they didn't qualify for pensions like the general service. In fact, there was a bonus march on Washington in 1922, I believe it was, and basically they uh, never got it. So they never received any pension. And for all those guys that were gassed and mustard gas in World War I, it's a tragedy. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I I do remember there was that big march on Washington against Herbert Hoover at the time of the Depression, and they wanted their money at that time, yeah. That's very true. And I'll tell you, it's it's sad because we've lost so many of the records from World War One veterans when that big fire in St. Louis, Missouri occurred in 1973. To think that a pension file held elsewhere would be a goldmine of information that we never have. All right. Thank you so much, David. And thank you, Irvin, for the question. And if you have a question for us for Ask Us Anything, all you have to do is email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Talk to you next week, David. 
All right, my friend. Take care. And that's our show for this week. Thanks once again to Maureen Taylor, the photo detective, talking about how to put together your own history of your experience through the pandemic. Thanks also to Chris Desmond and Robert Friedman. They're on the interim board of a brand new thing called the Family History Metadata Working Group. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.